Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the NBA playoffs, fights, and even next season's futures. And don't forget that Major League Baseball is back as well. Who will you be picking to win the World Series? BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting in your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started. So head over to the website today or use your mobile device to sign up and use our promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the Believe in Sports Law podcast via the Believe Network. As always, appreciate you listening in and making us the number one sports law podcast in the world. We have two very special guests with us today, Kanika Corley, who is a sports law partner at a a major law firm, and also uh, Jenna Rangel, who is a Title IX uh, employee counsel at a a well-known law firm uh, here in California as well. And uh, just happy to have them with us on the show. This is for episode 17 of season four. So sit back and uh, enjoy. Thank you so much. All righty. Well, let's see. We have two uh, very special guests with us today. We have Kanika Corley, who is a litigation partner at uh, Ackerman. Did I say that right, Kanika? You did. Nice. Nice. (laughs) Because sometimes people say it wrong, right? They say Ackerman. About 98% of the time, people say it's Ackerman, and it's fine. I'll go with it. But it really (laughs) is Ackerman. (laughs) Nice. I love it. So Kanika is a friend. She's, uh, as I mentioned, she's a litigator. She's up in Los Angeles. Uh, she graduated from USC Law School, and uh, just a very, uh, very bright, very smart, um, and very kind person. She went to, uh, again, USC for her Master's of Law. Uh, she went to USD um, uh, for her JD, and then USC for uh, her undergrad. And um, Ackerman is a big firm. And uh, Kanika focuses on IP, commercial litigation, and businesses in entertainment, media, and sports. And then we have uh, Jenna Rangel, who's uh, also a dear friend. She's down in San Diego. And uh, I might, I hope I don't butcher this name, <laughs> Jenna, but is it Hagist and Eck? Hagquist and Eck. Oh, boy. All right. I know. It's... <laughs> I think uh, 100% of the time, that one's not pronounced right. So <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Yeah. So Hagquist uh, and Eck, and I should know that too, because I know we've, uh, we've done this once before, so I've got to remember that. Uh, so she is a partner at, um, at Hagquist and Eck down in San Diego. She's been practicing for, um, for over a decade, and uh, she represents employees and a lot of uh, the employment issues that we're going to be talking about um, today. And then obviously, uh, uh, later on as well. So, uh, Kanika, let's start with you. Maybe talk a little bit about your background, um, how you got into, um, yeah, I mean, have you always wanted to be a lawyer and then, uh, sort of what you're working on now, uh, at the firm? Sure. So, um, gosh, I used to tell a story of how I decided I wanted to be a lawyer and I don't know that it'll really resonate with you guys anymore because I'm not, so young. Um, So when I was about eight years old, my parents told me I had two choices. You could be a lawyer or a doctor. And I watched the Cosby show and thought that Felicia Rashad was amazing. And um, that was the decision. I wanted to be her. So that's how I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. I was an athlete growing up. Um, I played a lot of tennis. I played a lot. I did a lot of dancing, um, really any sport. I was, was something that I was really into as well as academics, but really sports. And because of that, um, 
I never saw professional sports as something that was going to take me very far, but I saw that their representatives had something to give. And so I decided that somehow I was going to marry the two. And um, from that, uh, I became a lawyer. When you're in law school, you kind of get forced into on-campus interviews and into these, you know, um, you, you get into um, any, you, you just basically want any job, <laughs> any job that's gonna take you. And so the, the track I was led down was litigation. I thought I wanted to do more mergers and acquisitions and corporate takeovers. I had no idea what any of those words meant, but those words, again, kind of resonated with me. Um, but then I found myself in a litigation practice. I realized that I liked it. Um, I liked trying to resolve disputes for people and I liked advocating on behalf of my clients. And so it just continued on in that vein. Um, when I was maybe around a third or fourth or fifth year lawyer, I was finally able to say that I wanted to focus more on media, entertainment, and sports. And so I started reading up on it and trying to figure out who the players were in the industry. And um, I'm now a 20-year lawyer. And in all of those years, have met people like Jeremy um, and have learned what other people do in the profession to represent athletes, entertainers, actors, talents, and on the other side, teams, companies. And so what I do really, is I don't represent athletes. I don't represent, um, I, my clients tend to be athletes, but who I represent are their businesses. I represent them in a, in a, from the corporate side. Um, so if they have some sort of um, business or some sort of merger that they're trying to get into some sort of um, something outside of the court uh, or the field, I typically will help them with those business endeavors. Um, so that's a lot of what I do. Those types of companies will find themselves in litigation quite frequently. Sometimes I'm negotiating um, acquisition of marathons, for example, on behalf of some of my clients. They will, they will draft up an asset purchase agreement, someone will stop paying, and then we'll need to litigate. And so I'll find myself litigating there. Um, I'll find myself litigating on behalf of um, a client who has an endorsement deal with a writer that calls for certain uh, certain actions to be taken on that on that company's behalf, and and if the other side doesn't fulfill, then we have to litigate that as well, or at least uh, threaten litigation. So that's where some of my litigation arises from in media, entertainment, sports. I also represent publishers and. Um, protecting their First Amendment rights and, and the like. So that's a, it's just a general overview of how I came to be. Oh, well, thanks, Kanika. I appreciate it. And of course, those, litiga those litigation skills come into, uh, uh, come into use, um, uh, you know, really in all areas of, of the law, in particular, or particularly in entertainment. And so, uh, Jenna, let's go over to you. A little bit on uh, probably provide a little bit on your background and kind of uh, how you got into the law um, and and what you're what you're working on now. Sure. Well, I I did not have a lawyer uh, role model like Felicia Rashad to look after back in the day because I didn't. Have, my parents did not give me that choice. It was more you're going to college and that's it because no one had gone to college in my family. Um, and so, like many people of my generation and continuing, as the first person to go to school, I had no idea what I was doing at all. I didn't know how to pick a major. Um, I didn't even know what to consider when picking a major. So I thought, business, that sounds good, right? That sounds like a great major. Um, and so I did that and really had no idea what I wanted to do with myself or, or how I was gonna even apply that in my life. But I took a business law class that I liked and my first job out of uh, college happened to be at a law firm. Um, and it, the law firm did interesting work. It was, they represented mortgage companies and insurance claims on homes that were foreclosed, generally where the, the owners had burnt it down or vandalized it or whatever. 
Um, and as a named insured on an insurance policy, the mortgage company was entitled to funds. Um, and so I was, you know, not thinking about law school at, at all at the time, but I was doing this kind of random law firm job. But what I liked about it was investigating, you know, what happened, looking at the policy and figuring out how can I make them pay? Um, and that kind of led me to going to get my paralegal certificate from USD, which was like a night school thing. Um, and then I ended up as a paralegal in an employment firm um, and kind of quickly realized that I liked that work. Um, I was doing plaintiff's employment back then. Um, I really liked doing all the investigative work and the trying to get the money work, but for people and not a mortgage company. Um, even though it's fun to take money from an insurance company, it wasn't so much fun to then hand it over to a mortgage company. So getting to get the stories of the clients and really help them, um, that kind of drove me to then go to law school. So I went to law school and then um, kind of interned in a bunch of different things, ended up at a general civil lit firm out of school and was doing actually a lot of different things, but an employment defense practice kind of grew a lot. Um, and when that firm dissolved, because all the partners kind of had different things going on, my resume ended up here and I ended up on the plaintiff side, which I can say, you know, it's like uh, the profession kind of chose me. I, I just kind of followed what felt natural and what was presenting opportunities to me. And I ended up exactly where I never knew I wanted to be. So that's been really awesome. I've been here now at this firm for eight years, I think. Um, and I certainly wouldn't go back um, to my defense days, even though I do feel like I have an understanding of what that's like. Um, I take it probably less personally than maybe other plaintiff's lawyers when I'm faced with defense lawyers, because um, I get it, you know, everybody's doing their job and everybody uh, has to do the best by their clients. Um, so that's what I do. So I, I, I primarily do a plaintiff's employment law. That means all types of discrimination, harassment, retaliation, wage and hour stuff, breach of contract stuff. And recently I've gotten into Title IX, funny enough, which I think last time, Jeremy, I told you I would be in it, but I couldn't say yet what it was. So now I can say I'm co-counsel on a Title IX case against San Diego State University. Um, it's uh, the first, I believe, to ever seek financial damages for... Um, inequitable financial aid distribution, essentially. There are also equal treat, unequal treatment claims um, in that case and a retaliation cause of action. We actually just amended our complaint. So um, that's been exciting. And I feel like Title IX is a natural progression from employment discrimination. Um, I actually interned when I was in law school at the California Women's Law Center, who happened at the time to be working on a Title IX case against a San Diego high school district. And that case is now cited heavily. Um, and I'm citing it now for this case, but um, it's exciting. It's kind of a full, full circle moment because a lot of the same things apply. It's you know, unfair treatment based on a protected class. And you know, you're, you're trying to seek vindication, damages. In Title IX, it's often injunctive relief, which is why, which means making changes kind of going forward. But this case in particular is seeking past damages, which makes it different and new. So we'll see how that all plays out. But that's kind of, what's going on with me right now. Oh, well, thanks, Jenna. Um, so in terms of, uh, you know, obviously both of your experience, um, you guys both have terrific experience. And of course, Kanika, from, from your standpoint, I mean, litigation and really from your, from yours too, as well, Jenna, but litigation is so important because um, you don't always get the answer you want from a demand letter or from, um, uh, you know, you basically have to litigate to sometimes get what you want or to defend your client, right. Or to, um, or to get something for your client. So, you know, basically for the non-lawyers, right. It's like litigation is an, a huge and important aspect of, uh, even if cases don't go to trial, it's just the lead up to it. Right. And then Jenna, I want to uh, come back to you a little bit on the employment stuff, just so we can kind of lay some groundwork if that's okay. Um, if you could just a little bit talk, talk about um, sort of what Title IX, and we're going to go over this later too, but what Title IX is and, and what a typical case might look like. Because I, from a sports standpoint, um, you know, Title IX is probably the, uh, the biggest issue when it comes to that. And then, of course, um, 
not so, I mean, maybe a little bit of wage an hour and maybe a little bit of, um, you know, obviously, um, uh, some of the other issues, but can you talk a little bit about title nine and, uh, some of your experience with that and sort of, uh, what that law is really? Yeah. I mean, I guess there's two different things we could talk about. So if we want to talk employment, cause this would imply apply whether or not it's a coach at a school or anyone working at a school employment really is fair employment and housing act of California, um, which says that you can't treat anyone, uh, unfairly essentially in the benefits of their employment and hiring and firing and all sorts of decisions based on a protected class. Um, and protected classes are things like race, disability, gender, sex, veteran status. There's all sorts of different um, protected classes. <clears throat> it also protects you from making protected complaints uh, and not being retaliated against. It also protects you against harassment. Um, and, and, and then, so with Title IX, like what I'm doing right now, there's kind of two different things. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a section of it that applies to um, sex discrimination and, and sexual assault type cases. And then there's the portion that deals with kind of what I told you about with SDSU, which is um, the differential treatment or unequal treatment um, based on, on sex, essentially. There's three components to Title IX when you're talking about the sports and the athletes and those kinds of things. And that's, you got to provide um, participation opportunities that are essentially equal to the proportion of um, the gender makeup of the school. So if you have a school that's got 60% females and 40% males, you need to provide 60% of the total athletic opportunities, meaning spots on teams or teams in general, to females and then 40% to males. Those are the cases that are most often litigated and you see the most case law on. Um, a lot of it, because it's primarily a numbers game and you can easily see because schools have to report um, publicly what their numbers are every year, you can easily see and, and oftentimes um, their, their, um, the makeup of students is also public, like the number of students that they have and whether or not they're female or male. Those things are public too. So that those those cases are, I think, the most heavily litigated. Most Title IX cases involve that. Then you've got financial aid. So then it, you take it a step further and you say, well, if you've got 60% female students, then you got to have 60% participation opportunities and 60% of the total um, funding for athletics, meaning like scholarship money that comes from the federal government, which is the reason why we have Title IX. Essentially, Title IX says there's a contract between the government and these entities that take federal funds for things like um, financial aid and all that kind of stuff. And, it, and in that they're allowed to say as a contract term, you, you're not allowed to discriminate. You gotta do these certain things. So you go to financial aid when they're giving financial aid, um, it would then have to reflect the uh, participation rates. So if you're following the law and you've got 60% uh, opportunities for female athletes, you then have to be providing 60% of the financial aid, essentially, and you can have like give or take 1% and or there can be legitimate reasons that are not discriminatory that can explain a gap. But generally, anything more than 1% that's not explained is, is a flag for concern, but you've got to provide that funding. And then you take it a step further and there's all sorts of um, uh, uh, bases for a treatment claim. And that's like um, providing this um, substantially equal uh, facilities, um, recruitment funds, paying the coaches and all that kind of stuff. So when you get the payment of coaches and those kinds of things, you might then get an employment case, right? But generally when you're talking about the payment of coaches, I think a lot of the times, at least the cases I've seen, a lot of them are either breach of contract cases, um, um, uh, the equal pay, equal pay act cases, um, FIHA cases, because those are all particularly employment and not just Title IX. And then Title IX also has a anti-retaliation provision. Uh, an issue that came up that's in our amended complaint in San Diego State is that once the women filed their lawsuit, a meeting was held by, and uh, with current athletes and plaintiffs, essentially saying, expressing the disappointment in these female plaintiffs filing their suit. Um, and so, you know, the argument is that serves to kind of chill participation in these in these types of cases, which is their, their, their legal right to do. 
Did I answer your question or just like it does. No, that's perfect. Five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. No, thanks, Jenna. Um, it's a, it was a really good answer as to, so, so title nine is this is really just really important piece of legislation that, um, you know, really changed the sports industry in terms of giving, um, you know, essentially, uh, more equality to, um, to sort of athletic teams in terms of resources. Of course, this is something that's come up in the news media recently with, uh, the, the NCAA basketball tournament and what resources were given to the male and the female teams and sort of see how that plays out. And then Jenna really quick, and then we'll go back to Kanika talk a little bit about, uh, if you can, um, maybe sort of like the, the life of like, uh, a sexual harassment case, if you will. Um, like how does that come to your desk? You know, is it the client calls you, um, sort of like what, what, what sort of happens. And the reason I want, I think it's important is because I want obviously, um, the folks who are listening to, to kind of understand, um, obviously the importance of those cases and then sort of how to protect, uh, you know, your rights through that, through those, that, that process. Yeah. So what I've primarily done most of my career is sexual harassment under the fair employment and housing act. So the laws that protect employees from harassment. And usually we get our cases just from people calling us, um, having seen us either in the media or um, blogs or, or whatever, or they just get our number and they call us and they tell us their story. And we vet um, their call and, and get more information. And if it appears to be a viable case, then we take them on. Um, Title IX, I've come to learn, is a harder burden to prove than for employees, which I just find sickening. Um, in sexual, like essentially employees have an easier burden to meet when it comes to sexual harassment than students who have been victims of sexual assault. And that applies to all ages. Um, I don't have the elements in front of me, but um, I can tell you after very recently researching all this, I was shocked. Um, you essentially have to show that a higher up at the school um, knew and was um, kind of intentionally intentionally disregarded the, their complaints or kind of allowed it to happen. And the, the track record that they have to show of the instances of assault happening to them, um, complaints being made and putting the school on notice is much more than in a sexual harassment employee case. With employees, it's um, basically if somebody does um, you know, physically, verbally, um, uh, po you know, posting things on social media, anything that make that is offensive and subjectively and objectively would make a reasonable person um, be, I mean, there's a list of things, but it be offended, humiliated, all these different types, um, it, it could be viewed as hostile, all these things. And um and you can show that, and then you can show that they were harmed by it. You're essentially proving a harassment case. And in, in employment law, a supervisor is held to be, a company is held to be strictly liable for a supervisor who does it because they say, well, you've put that person in a position of power. And so therefore the, um, the company is automatically liable if that supervisor is found to be liable um, by virtue of that kind of position of power and trust that they put them in. That's not the same in Title IX, which is crazy to me. So the school can't be held automatically liable for sexual assault by a teacher, you know, a, a principal, like a person that they put in power over, over, over kids and, and students, they can't be held strictly liable for that, which I found shocking. Um, but in employment law, that is the case. Um, and the life cycle of the case is just like any other case. I mean, you get into it. Um, it's, it's usually less document intense than I think uh, any kind of discrimination case. Um, because it's either the thing happened or it didn't. And it's, you know, I had a case last year against our San Diego County Sheriff's Department, sexual harassment. The assistant sheriff grabbed uh, a, an administrative secretary's buttocks twice. Um, one time kind of caught on camera, but the camera cut off, but you could see the hand go down. And that was it. She continued working there. There was no lost wages, but there was an emotional distress piece. You know, she suffered the fear of him um, every single time she'd go to his building because essentially he cornered her when nobody else was there and did that to her. 
under the guise of giving her a hug. And she didn't know him, but this is the, you know, the assistant sheriff. So you give deference to that. You give respect for that. And she felt like she had to do that. And then he took advantage of it. And while the county defended itself by claiming that that the two grabs on her butt were not enough to be severe or pervasive harassment to hold the, the county liable, the judge found otherwise. And it's interest, It's important to know that in employment cases, there's automatic um, statutory attorney's fees that you get um, if you win. Uh, and it's to encourage uh, plaintiff's lawyers to take cases essentially on contingency, because if you think about it, they don't have the money to fund. You know, that case was a three-year litigation. And at the end of the day, although the client got um, $60,000 from the judge in her emotional distress, um, the county ended up paying another $650,000 in attorney's fees and costs. And, and so it's in to incentivize plaintiff's lawyers to take on these worthy cases to help people get vindication and stand up for themselves, even when the amount at stake isn't huge, because it's important. Um, so again, I've, now you can hear me rambling, Jeremy. I'm like over here, just yapping away. Did I answer your question? No, you did. Can that I was move on to Kanika, please. Before yes, yes. <laughs> no, Kanika's next. That was. No, perfect. I'm learning so much. This is great. It's <laughs> taking me right back to my employment discrimination class at, at USD. So please, there we go. <laughs> so Kanika, from your standpoint, because you're representing a lot of the employers and the teams and the leagues and that sort of thing. What are some of the processes that maybe you put in with your clients or uh, contracts that maybe you sort of advise them to put into play to maybe help? Because there's always two sides, right? Um, and so what, what are some of the things that you do in your practice to kind of help protect employers or, or uh, some of your clients? Yeah. So again, I don't do employment law, but my firm does. Ackerman is a full service law, law firm and we do handle um, employment matters. I just don't personally do it. My, um, my firm, unlike Jenna's, only represents employers. So if anyone calls us and it happens and says, I want to sue my employer, we say, I will refer you to Jenna or, or someone else. And, and that, that is what we do. <laughs> so um, what we do for our clients is what you might expect. We are defense oriented. So we are always looking to, as Jenna described, investigate and try and figure out whether or not this thing that is being alleged actually occurred. Um, and if it occurred in the way that the person says, and we're trying to test credibility of witnesses and, and trust the credibility of documents. Um, and when I say credibility, I just mean, can you believe it? Does it, does it stand up to scrutiny? Um, and so we're looking into every corner that we can while also educating our clients on what this means. What does this allegation mean? What are the implications for you? What are the PR implications? Um, do you really want to be in litigation for three years? Or do you want to resolve this and make it go away and see if we can reach some sort of amicable um, agreement with the other side so that we don't cause too much disruption because the institution or the company is going to continue on. Um, we have to look at the actors and determine whether or not they need to be counseled, trained, um, and, or whether it, it truly is something after, you know, following an investigation that we cannot say occurred. And if that's the case, kind of regardless from my standpoint, I'm always, trying to counsel and train my clients. And I'm always trying to explain to them the implications of what, what occurred. If it was a situation where two people had an occurrence and they just misinterpreted the other person's uh, conduct, uh, one person was offended and the other person doesn't understand why the, person, the other person was offended. Um, then we have to have a conversation about why certain people, not certain people, but why people are, are allowed to be offended by actions that you think are not offensive and what we need to do as a result of that for everyone to learn how to coexist. And, um, and so sometimes it's, it's a bit of 
uh, course correction. Sometimes it might be overcorrection. Um, and that's, we never want to, to um, try and make people stop being honest with themselves and, and really kind of regulating themselves constantly. But we just have to make sure that they understand um, how to get through, how, how to work with other people in a professional manner. Um, so that's a lot of, of what we're doing. We are defending against the actions set forth against our client to the extent that it's defensible, um, but we're, and we're protecting them because you know, everyone at the end of the day is, is entitled to um, a defense. You know, the constitution, and I'm sure you guys will get into it eventually. You think about it, just uh, you know someone did something terribly bad and they're accused of a crime. Um, we have constitutional standards put in place that say that we have to make sure that everyone has uh, proper representation. That doesn't mean that we're saying they're not guilty or they didn't do something wrong. It's just we have to make sure that we're pulling them through the process and making the other side follow the rules. And so sometimes when our clients have done something wrong, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure the other side is following all the rules. We're looking to make sure these witnesses are not lying, trying to make something bigger than actually occurred. And, and so we're, we're doing that on the one hand. On the other hand, we're training and counseling our clients. Nice. And then now I appreciate you sharing that, Kanika. And then we're going to stick with you. So for the next question, and we'll go back to Jenna. Um, in terms of like, uh, some of the transactional work, uh, that you do for some of your clients, um, can you talk a little bit about that? Particularly, we're going to talk about this in, in a, in a later session, but, um, maybe some of the work that you do with trademarks and name, image, and likeness and that sort of thing. Uh, just so since we have you, I'm kind of curious as to your, your sort of experience with some of those things. Yeah, you know, name, image, and likeness is where I kind of got started in media, entertainment, and sports. Um, I was, as I mentioned, I was, was very interested in it as a much younger attorney and um, started doing a lot of research on it and then started publishing articles about it. And one of my articles was published in LA Lawyer Magazine, maybe about 10 plus years ago or so. And that article as Jenna was mentioning earlier, it comes full circle. It now has been published in district courts and uh, you know third circuit opinions, which is um, appellate courts in the federal in the federal um, federal jurisdiction. And and so it just feels really cool to be able to see your name, see people citing to your random thoughts about name, image, and likeness uh, issues. Um, and, and citing to it now, um, you know, are my clients excited about seeing me say, this is, this is how I feel. And this is, these are my thoughts on, on these types of issues. Probably not because sometimes clients change. Um, whereas when you start off talking about name, image, and likeness, and you start advocating for students on the one hand, and then all of a sudden you find yourself representing an institution that. Um, students now want to sue, you know, sometimes that, that doesn't play out so well, but um, that is not the situation that I have. I, I have always been on the side of uh, the institutions, but sometimes that's what happens when, you, when you're much younger publishing um, articles. So name, image, and likeness uh, cases deals with just what it sounds like. Someone has decided or someone feels as though they've got a strong brand they've got a strong name, they're recognizable to people um, and they wanna use it. Michael Jordan, for example, he's got a strong name. People recognize it, they recognize him as representing maybe basketball or golf or just you know, professional athletes or even Nike. And so you can't just take his name and slap it on something else because you have a thought about it. Sometimes you can though. Sometimes there's a defensible way to think about it. You can be making fun of it. You can, so that would be parody. There could be some sort of other fair use of the name Michael Jordan to reference something else. And that might be a nominative fair use or a name, using the name in a fair type way. Um, and so those types of issues are, are issues that I clearly geek out about. Um, and so when my clients come to me saying, 
um, I saw my name or I saw a saying that I like to use all the time being used by some product out there and I want to sue. Um, I'm, I'm either I'm either on the side of bringing that lawsuit or defending against that lawsuit and defending it would be using those defenses of fair use um, that, that I just kind of referenced. Um, so I've been doing that, those name, image, and likeness cases um, for, I would say, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so. Um, I also have a soft IP practice. So that's trademarks, copyrights, um, trade, trade dress, trade secrets. Um, and that has to do again with selling goods, having a name tied with the sale of goods or services and, um, or, uh, or putting your thoughts down to some sort of recorded format and therefore you you've, uh, have copyrighted content. Um, that content is something that's protectable. And so I usually am I'm on the side of representing the IP, the intellectual property owner um, who is suing um, or being sued because there is some sort of violation with the, the use of their recognizable trademark, uh, service mark, or copyrights, um, sometimes even trade dress, how the thing looks. Um, and so that's a lot of the, the work that I do. Um, in terms of the transactional work that I've been doing as of late, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's on behalf of clients who are buying and selling events, live events. Um, sometimes they're buying and, and selling uh, musical events or athletic events. Um, right now, um, I've been working at, at least for past year or so on a series of writers for a client um, who's a professional basketball player, but his company has, um, it has endorsement deals with various other uh, larger entities. And for all of those endorsement deals, we are putting together writers for, to help um, improve diversity, equity, and inclusion standards. And to really call on, um, the companies that want to work with him or be associated with him and his brand, um, that they need to make sure that people who are hired above the line and below the line on production look like the rest of America, um, whether it be from um, um, ethnicity, background, gender, um, or ability, uh, physical ability background. We just want to make sure that that people who are being hired to work on these productions don't just look like who is doing the hiring. Um, so, you know, for this client in particular, went to a shoot um, and he was on the shoot and with another uh, professional athlete, that both of them just looked at each other like, who, who are these people on this production and why don't they look like the rest of America? I'm sure if you tried harder, you could, you could hire people that actually look like all of the colors of the rainbow and all abilities as opposed to just everyone looking the same because you go to the same place over and over again. So that's one of the one big project that I've been working on um, with, with one of my clients and it's really close to my heart, as you can tell. No, that's great. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so Jenna, we're going to, we're going to go back to you a little bit. Uh, but you know, Kanika, I appreciate you sharing that because, uh, again, I think it highlights the importance of, uh, and it's maybe the theme that we've been going through throughout this entire course is that, you know, there's always going to be two sides to every transaction. Right. And, and it shows the importance of, um, sort of why you need a lawyer but then also um, just the ex the different expertise, right? Uh, which I which I think is is important. Yeah, so Jen, I'll, I'll go I, ahead. Go I'll ahead. Just add in real quick um, to tie Jenna back in on that um, diversity, equity, inclusion writer that I was just mentioning. There, there's a lawyer on the other side who I'm negotiating with, and his comeback to me is typically, "Well, we can't have quotas." And my response is, we're not trying to create quotas for you. We're just trying to, to, to equalize it, equalize hiring practices, which all ties in to labor and employment. And so I'd, I'd be interested to hear um, Jenna's perspective on that 
Sorry for the random question, Jenna. I hope it makes sense. <laughs> no, that's okay. Jenna, let's go with that. Let's go with her question. And I got a couple of questions for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. Good, I, good on you, Tamika, because that's great. I mean, that's a lot of, I don't necessarily deal with that. We hope that that's what, if companies were doing that, we, there'd be, I think, a lot less issues. And California did put into effect some laws that say that essentially boards, um, boards, board membership needs to, uh, they don't have quotas either, but there does need to be a certain diversity of uh, gender and race and things. Um, and, and so I, I love all of that stuff. I think that that's essential. I think that because when you, you have an opportunity, right? When both sides of a transaction want something um, and it kind of ties into what I was talking about with Title IX, that you, know, you have two sides that want something. The school wants the financial aid money and the government's gonna give it, right? And so within that, they have an opportunity now to promote uh, diversity and inclusion by making sure that that is something that the, um, the grantee follows in order to get the funds. So it's kind of you're forcing them to comply and to diversify and to be inclusive. And it's sad that you have to force it, but I think we've learned over all of these years that you do. <laughs> Sometimes you really do. People don't do these, uh, make these decisions on their own. They'll also make excuses. They'll say things like, oh, well, we, you know, we, um, uh, you know, we, we, we promote diversity. We do this, that, and the other. But when you really look at what they're doing, they got, the numbers got to match that. It has to really reflect. And I think the Title IX is a good example of that because they tie, although it's primarily gender-based when it comes to the sports, but they tie opportunities and aid to that strict proportion. And they say, essentially, you got to reflect what's at, who's at your school. And you have to give that amount of funding and opportunities and treatment as, as it should be, right? And, you know, Title IX was really passed that way back when um, to, one, recognize the fact that men had gotten such a leg up with all of the money being pushed towards them in sports. And they looked at things like how it impacted um, females and males as students, because when you're an athlete, um, that does so much for there, it, it showed a lot that did a lot for their mental well-being, for their emotional well-being, for their the feelings of camaraderie that they have with their teams. It, it helped them academically. Like there were so many ways in which sports helped that women weren't getting the benefit of. And so they, you know, Title IX part of that was to push and 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 give a ramp up for women to get that kind of those kinds of benefits that they should be getting because it's so important to overall, your overall school experience. It showed you know, that student athletes are often much more successful. There's, I mean, there's just so many statistics and things that they show uh, how, how, how it benefits. So they want the, the, the law was a push to make sure that they were getting um, that same treatment and those same benefits. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And I, no, that's good. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> good. <laughs> no, thank you. That's good. That's good. And it was a great question by Kanika too. So Jenna, we're going to stick with you. If you can talk about, cause I think it's such an important one. Um, one talk a little bit about retaliation and what that means and what that looks like in a, in a context. And then uh, secondly, to give some sort of uh, practice specific examples um, talk a little bit about the, that San Diego State case that uh, that you're working on. Yeah, so retaliation is essentially um, protection from, well, in employment law, it's, you can't, an employer can't take adverse action against you for engaging in protected activity. And protected activity is, um, we, can, we call it making complaints, but it doesn't have to be like a formal complaint, like speaking out against what you believe to be unlawful. This can be anything from, you know, you're a doctor and you think that your hospital is engaging in Medicare fraud and you bring up, you bring this up and you're, you're telling them like we're billing inappropriately or whatever, and then they can that doctor. It can be a female um, firefighter in a, in a, in a department where, you know, it's 1% female, 99% male who brings up um, feeling that she's being ignored and excluded and she's not being provided the training opportunities as other people. And that she feels like she's being treated unfairly because she's female. 
Um, and then they, uh, you know, either fire her or take her off the good shifts or make her um, uh, do kind of like grunt work that other people don't have to do. Like it can take so many different forms, but essentially it's you're engaging in protected activity, which is you either are complaining about thing or reporting something that is unlawful or you reasonably believe it to be unlawful because that counts too under certain laws. Um, and then the employer says the employer is not then allowed to take adverse action against you, which can be anything from, um, you know, demotions, um, uh, keeping you out of, you know, leadership opportunities, training, training opportunities, um, firing, obviously. But there's, there's also a lot of different ways in which retaliation can occur. Um, I mean, the adverse actions can occur too. So that's what retaliation is. It says it's protection um, when you do make those kinds of reports and complaints because they want, the, the law wants to incentivize that and encourage that because we don't want people to be quiet. And I think obviously the Me Too movement was like a huge awakening for that, that when people are quiet, look what happens. And so we want people to talk. We want them to bring up these things and report these things so that corrective action can be taken. Um, as far as San Diego State, did you want me to talk just about the case or about the yeah, retaliation okay. claim is just one kind of small latest thing that not small, but uh, one, it wasn't the, the impetus for the case, I will say. Um, right, no. That is something that just happened. And so we literally just, we just put it in because, and it was a big deal because part of retaliation law too is you don't want to chill people from engaging in protected activity. It's important for people to engage in this activity. This is how um, things are put essentially on blast and people have to make changes, right? So doing things that dissuade people from, from making reports, um, which we're saying in this case includes calling out plaintiffs and essentially saying that it's disappointing um, that they've brought these claims um, ha can have that impact and, and effect on others from, from either joining the class or from bringing up their own reports. And we don't want that. The law doesn't want that. They, they want to encourage uh, these kinds of reports. So that's what it is in that case. But I didn't know if you had any other questions on the case. Yeah, no, retaliation just is a separate matter, just for the importance of it in the context of employment law, but then also um, just, yeah, the facts of the case for San Diego State and kind of where that stands now, because I think a practice specific example is going to be helpful. So folks can say, okay, this is what, you know, an employment or Title IX case or what have you looks like in the sports context. Yeah, so the San Diego State case came about actually, so in November 2020 in COVID, San Diego State got rid of their women's rowing team. Now, San Diego State has been more has had more uh, female students than males for over a, at least a decade, I think maybe two. So there's always been more participation opportunities for them. And when they cut the rowing team, which was the biggest um, team uh, of female athletes, the, and it was done very suddenly, it was done after um, quotes in the press from the athletic director that um, you know they weren't going to be cutting teams during COVID, that they were fine from like an equity standpoint and all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden they cut the team. And so the team, the first kind of real looking at that piece was, could we get the team back? And you can really only get a team back through the participation opportunity claim that I spoke about. So if, if the school is off on numbers where they, they have X number of uh, uh, female students, and then they have less than that, I mean, less than the appropriate proportion for female athletes, then they have to either reinstate or provide other opportunities to bring their numbers into equity. Here, um, there were, so that's what kind of started the case was looking into whether or not there were participation and opportunity violations to get the team back. Um, there's kind of a line of cases that talks about how you're allowed to count athletes multiple times when they play in multiple sports. And at San Diego State, one of the things they were doing was they have a track and field team and a cross country team for the women, but not for the men. And the reason for it likely is because you can triple count uh, one female athlete who's on the track and field team because they're not only then put on the cross country team, but they're put on the indoor team for track and field and the outdoor team for track and field, making me count it three times. So now they're kind of getting a lot of bang for the buck where they're not doing the same with, um, with the men's team. But at the end of the day, after kind of looking at everything, um, that claim did, didn't appear to be viable, but what appeared was this financial aid issue. 
And the fact that despite women uh, making up the majority of the school, making uh, up the majority of the athletes, they were getting shorted on the financial aid year after year after year. And this is stuff that's reported publicly um, and, and cheated out of a significant amount of money. Um, and so that kind of took the case down that path. And in the midst of all of that, also discovering um, some treatment issues, you know, the fact that the men's, I mean, I, I don't know that anyone on here is from San Diego, but, um, you know, men's were division one for, foot, you know, our, our football team has um, done relatively well here and there. Our, our, our basketball teams have done all right here and there, but we're division one and there are certain rules that apply to that. Um, and, you know, when you see things like brand new locker rooms being built for the men, and this is from the perspective of the female athletes, when you see brand new state-of-the-art locker rooms, and then you go to your old shared locker room that hasn't been updated in years and nobody cares about, you start to feel a certain way and, you, and, you're, and you're thinking, what is happening? When you see that the men are flown to every game, are staying in hotels the night before games, even, even when it's a home game, because all of these things help get them in like the mode in, in, in the mode to play, right? They really get to focus. They're, they're not having to worry about meals and transport and they get to go stay in a hotel and relax and all of these things that helps them with their prep and it helps them focus on their game when they're being provided more tutoring opportunities so that they can, you know, focus for an amount of time on their studies and get their grades, but then they can spend more time practicing when they get better schedules, like all of these things. Um, because you know, arguably the school wants them to do better because their sports allegedly, you know, they make the money, but that's not a defense in Title IX. It can't be that just because a men's sport brings in money for ticket sales because people go to football games that it gives the school license to treat the female teams inequitably. That's, that's not the case. And neither is it the case that NCAA rules can play a part in this um, as far as like caps on uh, scholarships and NCAA rules about certain things like that doesn't that's not a defense either um, and so with this case it's kind of touching on a whole bunch of different issues there's been a complaint filed then the school filed a motion to dismiss so essentially we brought a class case the school responded to the lawsuit by trying to move to dismiss the claims on certain legal grounds um, and then we have just filed a amended complaint, um, adding some additional claims. So down the pipeline, I'm imagining another motion to dismiss will come and we'll see what the arguments are there. Um, but it's interesting. It'll be interesting to watch to see how these things play out. But the case definitely touches on a lot of different aspects of um, Title IX. No, well, thanks, Jenna, for that. Um, such a fascinating case. And I've been reading about it in, in the papers and seeing what's going on. So I appreciate you sharing with your expertise. And then Kanika and Jenna will have uh, maybe two final questions for you too. So obviously we have a class full of um, some wonderful professionals that are going to enter their careers and uh, maybe, I don't know, provide some words of wisdom or um, some tips that you've used along the way to, uh, to get ahead. And maybe Kanika, we'll start with you. Tips to get ahead. <laughs> I had those. <laughs> um, let's see. Gosh, that's a tough one. Um, be nice to people. Um, it sounds really, uh, silly, but it, it's, it's important because which, whichever direction you go in, uh, you're going to run into the same people over and over again. And even though, even if you're on, on opposite sides, advocating for opposite sides, you should just be sure to treat one another fairly, kindly, to the extent possible. Not everyone's gonna treat you fairly or, or kind. Um, people are gonna judge you and it's incumbent upon you to rise above. Um, when I first started practicing, not very many people looked like me going into courtrooms, but what I had was the facts that I'm looking out and I'm not looking at myself. So I'm not looking around the room, looking for someone that looks like me because I know they're not there. All I can do is be the most prepared possible um, and hope that people treat me fairly without just deciding to judge me. 
Um, when I first started practicing, there was a lot of judgments. What could this little black girl know is what I got a lot. I got a lot of people making references to my gender and a lot of people making references to my ethnicity when I first started, which wasn't very kind. Um, and I remember that. And so now when they run into me, um, that's something that stays with me. I'm not cruel or mean to anybody, um, but I do remember that. And so just you know, treat people kindly because eventually uh, you will run into one another again and you might need something from, those, from that person. You might need a professional courtesy. So that's, that's my takeaway. That's how you um, become more successful, I think. Thanks, Kanika. Appreciate you sharing that. Um, all right, Jenna, let's uh, let's close with you. You're our closer today. Oh boy. Well, I wanted to echo what she said. I totally agree, Kanika. Your reputation will follow you, right? Um, and how you so essentially in both of our worlds, at some point we're being attacked for our position that we're taking, right? I'm gonna attack Kanika's position and she's gonna attack mine. And that's because Kanika is doing a great job for her client. She's looking at it from their business perspective and looking at the different ways that she can either defend against things or poke holes in things or make, help them make good business decisions. And on my end, I'm bringing our claims and I'm saying that it happened this way. And she's going to be attacking what I'm saying happened. I mean, what my client's saying, but through me, right? And, and that's because I'm trying to do the best job for my client. And we both recognize that at the end of the day, um, this, you know, the truth lies somewhere in between and that the attack isn't personal. And I think when you take things personally and you react and you react poorly, that sticks with you. And I can tell you the legal community, even though there's a lot of lawyers in California, it's pretty small. And when somebody acts, um, unprofessionally, when somebody is just kind of personally attacking and malicious for no reason, you know, there are lawyers that will throw out things like, you know, you're not acting in good faith and I'm going to seek sanctions against you and you're this, that, and the other. And, you know, you remember those people and everybody knows who those people are because the reality is no, I'm not acting in bad faith. I'm just trying to present our position. And you can tell me what the arguments back and I will consider them and give them the weight that we see fit. And sometimes we got to give it a lot of weight. Sometimes there is good, uh, defense arguments. And I have to really look at it and counsel my client on it. Um, and sometimes I think that we've got a really strong case on liability and whatever they're throwing at me, I'm, you know, I understand that they've got to, they've got to kind of find a way to try to defend it the best they can. But I can also say, you know what, I understand that that's your position. I'm, but that's, I'm not agreeing with it and I'm not buying that it happened that way. And that's it. And I can tell you one of the best kind of compliments you can get at the end of a case and I think Kanika will agree is when opposing counsel says it was really a pleasure litigating with you. Thank you for being so professional when they then refer cases to you. You know, I've had defense lawyers that I've been up against for years, then refer cases to me. And it's such a high compliment because it can get really ugly and nasty. And I think you stand out when you don't uh, go to that level. And when you really just, I guess the other thing to tail into that is be prepared, always be prepared, no matter who you're talking to. If it's the judge, if it's opposing counsel, if it's the associate lawyer, if it's the paralegal, I don't care who you're talking to, be prepared to talk to them and be professional when you talk to them, because that always stands out. And I, I am always most impressed when I have a very worthy kind of back and forth with counsel on something, and they really give me something to think about, and they really give me arguments and facts to think about. Um, I'm impressed by that, and I, and I, and it, and it, you know, it, it, it sticks with them. And I, and, you know, especially when you're going before judges, I will tell you this read everything. Do not cite things you haven't read. Um, don't, don't, you know, shoot from the hip, be prepared because they know. Um, and I think that takes you far. Yeah, your, your preparation and your professionalism. Oh, thanks, Jenna. Kanika, you've both been amazing uh, and I really appreciate your time coming with us tonight. All right, folks. Thanks again for listening in. Uh, that was Jenna Rangel and Kanika Corley uh, for uh, this week's episode. Look forward to being back with you uh, next week uh, where we will have uh, some additional uh, special guest uh, for the show. So thank you again and uh, happy Mother's Day to, uh, to all the mothers out there.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.